Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 392nd edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Coming to you on Voice America Business Channel broadcasting right across the world in this our ninth year. As you know, this program usually originates in Hollywood, California, the technology and entertainment capital of the world, and uh, that's my hometown. But today, we're broadcasting from the shores at Coffs Harbour. It's about six hours north of Sydney. I'm looking across the Pacific across a whole bunch of greenery and waves breaking up on the rocks. It's absolutely beautiful. There's been a little bit of rain this morning and it's absolutely delightful out there. And uh, for those of you who are not quite sure where it is, it's up straight up the coast from Sydney and it's in the area where um, Olivia Newton-John lives and the Hemworth boys live here, uh, Miley Cyrus, of course, Russell Crowe. They're all from this neck of the woods. It's absolutely beautiful. So I'm really pleased to be here. Now, in Australia, the federal government, as with governments in most of the rest of the world, they're extremely concerned with climate change. This, of course, is um, with the exception of the Trump government, which for some strange, inexplicable reason does not believe in climate change, mainly because the guy's a fuckwit, but... In most of the world, we're worried about it, and we know now that um, climate change worsens global inequality. Warmer temperatures caused by climate change will have the biggest impact on the world's poorest and most vulnerable people. Research shows that this has already happened over the last several decades. The poor are getting poorer. A study in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science found that in most poor countries, higher temperatures are more than 90% likely to have resulted in decreased economic output compared to a world without global warming. Meanwhile, the effect has been less dramatic in wealthier countries and many wealthy countries even potentially benefiting from the higher temperatures. Now, the irony is that the countries most likely to have lost out economically as a result of warmer temperatures, they're the countries that have had absolutely nothing or very little to do with contributing to global warming. So the poor buggers who haven't contributed to global warming are the ones that are copying the most damage. And a study in the journal Nature projected that the average income of the poorest countries because of global warming will decline 75% by 2100, while some of the richest countries will get gains in income. And a landmark report from the Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change, which is the UN's climate change body, showed that if global temperatures rise more than 1.5 degrees centigrade by the end of the century, and that is a very minimal projection, most projections are way, way, way higher than that, Poor countries are going to face critical challenges. And, of course, many smaller countries are going to lose their land totally due to 
ocean rises and there's going to be mass migration of people all over the world. So the migration that everybody's concerned about now, that their countries are getting flooded by people from um, poorer countries, it's going to get much, much worse. So instead of fighting it, we've got to get used to it. We've got to work out how the hell we're going to solve the problem instead of building stupid walls. Even before any of that research was published, climate policymakers have tried to address the problem of the poorest countries facing the worst effects of rising temperatures, for which they are least responsible. Early attempts at addressing global warming on the international stage included different expectations for of emission reduction depending on the size of your country and its economic level of development. Poorest countries receive more leeway. Of course, that didn't work for the United States because it helped feed the popular conservative narrative that Washington's overpaying for climate change mitigation while poor countries are get away, getting away with doing less. Of course, that's absolute crap. It's not true, but um, it's the way that um, it's being portrayed. And that talking points had real effects, hardline distinctions between requirements for rich and poor countries. They've been softened in recent years in favour of a lighter version of what climate change policymakers refer to as common but differentiated responsibilities. That was the principle embedded in the climate change agreements back, including the landmark Paris Agreement, and it suggests that richer countries should bear a greater burden in addressing climate change, but it's really vague. It doesn't set out any concrete policy, so it's absolutely bloody useless. Many of the world's developing countries have called foul. Bangladesh's finance secretary said the climate change problem was created somewhere else, but they're spending more on adaption because they have to live. Bangladesh's GDP per capita was 12% lower due to global warming than it would have been otherwise up to 2010. The effect is more dramatic elsewhere, particularly in sub-Saharan African countries, including Sudan, Burkina Faso and Niger, where climate change has driven GDP per capita more than 20% lower than it would have been without climate change. Now, higher temperatures affect economic output in a variety of ways. For example, labour productivity decreases with extreme heat, crops produce lower yields and cognitive functioning declines. There are a number of pathways by which temperature affects building blocks of economic activity, but what is clear is that for all the poor countries, the news is all bad. Do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? We now have about 1.7 million daily subscribers. It takes 30 seconds to read, and every day we tackle a different subject from advances in medicine to new apps to new technology, subjects like Hyperloop, autonomous cars, blockchain, cryptocurrency. And today's newsletter is about when it comes to the most critical business skills most startup entrepreneurs have simply taught themselves. School and college does not give them the skills they need. So we talk about what you need to do and how we go about it. And the one thing you're going to trust for the latest up-to-date business information is the Bob Pritchard Daily Newsletter. So to receive it, simply go to my website, bobpritchard.com, 
and subscribe. It is really easy. Now, last week I spoke about the growing wealth gap between the top 1% and the other 99% and the number of millionaires created by this year's IPOs. It's really staggering that the latest IPO, the latest two IPOs, would create 6,000 new millionaires, which is a lot. Now, I received a great letter from a guy named Dane Blair. He sent me an email from a company called Grooveworks, and I looked it up on online, and it's a custom music house. So thank you, Dane. Greatly appreciate it. He agreed with my points in principle, but had questions regarding the number of millionaires being created. And it's actually much rosier than what we're led to believe. So according to numerous articles, the US is averaging about 600,000 new millionaires every year. And this has been happening back for the last 20 years. And the CNBC report states that there were 700,000 new millionaires in 2017. And they also claim that the US currently has 11 million millionaires, but there's been other statistics showing as high as 16 million millionaires when you include net worth, which economists prefer since wages can vary greatly from year to year. You can have a boomer year one year and not make anything the next. And of course, the increase in net worth has been helped by surging stock prices and uh, housing values. This means that 5% of the American population are millionaires. So one person every 20 in the United States is a millionaire. In 1990, even with the recession underway, and this is a number that blows me away, 64,000 taxpayers earn more than a million dollars in the year. 64,000 people earn more than a million bucks. I wasn't one of them. And the IRS figures don't show accrued but unrealized capital gains on stock and real estate, which typically account for the lion's share of a person's wealth. Still, 64,000 people earning a million bucks a year is a hell of a lot. Now, there's a perception in the media that the 1% is an enduring group of the mega rich that stay there year after year and the bottom 99% stay where they are and can't get out. However, that obviously can't be true given the number of new millionaires that enter the ranks each year. IRS data shows that of those in the 1% in 1996, 50% were no longer in the 1% 10 years later. So 50% of the bottom 1% in 1996 had got out of the 99% 10 years later. Also, 80% of those in the bottom 20% in 1996 were not in the bottom 20% in 2006, having moved up. Now, a recent study at Washington University shows that 12% of Americans at one time or another in their lifetime will spend five years in the top 5%. 39% will spend five years in the top 5%. And 56% will find themselves in the top 10% and 73% of Americans will spend a year in the top 20. So when you think that there are 16 million millionaires in America and something like 50, 60, 
thousand people become millionaires every year, and there's another sixty-four thousand that earn a million dollars a year. You can see that the one percent, ninety-nine percent story doesn't quite ring true. It would seem that despite the enduring myth that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer, it isn't really that true. And social mobility is alive and well in the United States. Now, I think the United States is quite different than most other countries, even proportionately. I can't see too many other countries that would produce, you know, 17 million millionaires and a new, you know, just last week, in California, there were 6,000 new millionaires. Just wrap your mind around that. That's extraordinary. So that explains why we live there. Now, my interviewed guest today is Paul O'Byrne, who's a really good friend of mine. And Paul worked with Kate Blanchett for a number of years. He is now in the United States and he's working with an arts group and he's um, the National Arts Group, and he's concerned about sustainability. And uh, I'll be speaking with Paul straight after the break. So this is Bob Pritchard talking to you from beautiful Coffs Harbour, absolutely gorgeous up here. Unfortunately, I'm only here for another day and got to go back to LA, but um, I'll miss it here. It's lovely. This is Bob Pritchard. I'll be back with Paul O'Byrne in just a moment. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. Over the last five and a half years or so, and I'm not sure whether I mentioned that um, I've just signed for another year a couple of weeks ago. So we've got six years, not bad considering we started on a 13-week trial. But uh, over those five and a half years, we've given you insights into the lives of over 300 of the world's most interesting people. We talk about what they do, the challenges they've faced and what makes them tick. It's um, extremely difficult to make your mark in the world and achieve success. Most businesses fail. Most people fail. 
Um, in fact, the latest figures I saw with startups, it's over 98% of startups fail. So the aim of this segment is to introduce you to people that are involved in interesting and possibly different roles. And um, we try to learn their keys to success. The other aim of this segment is to assist you to overcome challenges, seize initiatives and become highly successful. My guest today, Paul O'Byrne, is a really interesting character. He's an impact specialist in the cultural creative area. And what the hell does that mean? Well, we'll find out in a minute. But Paul most recently worked with Kate Blanchett, Academy Award-winning actress, and Andrew Upton, and uh, with a Theatre in Australia leading their social impact community and environmental sustainability initiatives. He did that for five years. He's got broad experience in building strategic cross-sector partnerships and the creation of programs for strategic financial and social impact in the cultural sector and creative businesses. He's an expert creative entrepreneur, helping companies conceive, lead, deliver and evaluate major change programs turning their business problems into long-term assets. Paul's got broad experience across a wide range of leading creative arts and cultural businesses, and he works with executive teams to assess the real strategic need, identify the best path, identify new funding and revenue opportunities, and solve complex problems and drive the project with cross-sector stakeholders to deliver lasting value, and that's what we all need. Paul's been a successful startup founder, not many of them around, major event manager, social entrepreneur, environmental and corporate change maker. Phew, I'm glad I got through that. Paul, welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You are being heard right around the world. Hey, Bob. How are you? I am really good. I'm really good. Good. It's, um, the weather looks like it's getting better. It's nowhere near as cold. For those of you outside Southern California, which is most of you, uh, we're used to weather that's sort of 80 degrees every day, never any rain, and uh, for the last two or three weeks, we've had nothing but rain and cold, which is very unusual for us, and uh, we don't like it, and the freeways don't like it, but uh, it looks like it's picking up. Now, Paul... Social consciousness and sustainability, they're becoming increasingly important to corporations today and there's been loads of studies that shown just how important they are to the bottom line, to share prices, to employee morale um, and a whole range of other things and not to mention it's great for the planet. So how would you describe social consciousness consciousness and sustainability for those who are listening and are not quite sure what we mean? That's a good question. Um, you know, I think just to start with, it's, it's, it's coming back to the fundamentals of, of businesses being able to operate or having a license to operate. And, and when sometimes the, the pendulum sort of swings a little far um, in business and corporate favour, um, you know, I think sometimes the broader population goes, hang on, this isn't quite fair. The planet's kind of getting 
shafted along the way or or the communities that these companies are working with um, are not necessarily getting looked after. And I think that so social impact and social sustainability in a, and an environmental sustainability in a corporate setting is really about um, just bringing that back into balance and, and recognising that companies, be they small micro-businesses or large multinational corporations, are actually operating in an ecosystem and that ecosystem needs to get looked after. So if that's about looking after your supply chain and the workers that work within that or um, or your fleet of trucks that are driving around the country um, and ensuring that maybe they're not polluting the communities you're trying to sell to, um, that's uh, that all helps ultimately your brand and your place and your uh, and your ability to, to actually operate in that market. Companies that have, have become socially responsible, um, there's a lot of companies, but the ones that are obvious, you know, the, the Patagonias, the Starbucks, those sorts of people that um, are socially responsible, is that being driven mainly by millennials and, and the younger generation or is it across the board? It seems to me just with my son who's now 25 or 26 um, and his friends, they really do care whether a company is being socially responsible. It really matters to them. Do you think they're older folks like us? Do you think it, um, you think we're as concerned? I think so. I think um, certainly inside business, um, you know, p- companies are always looking at their um, ability to operate. And so I think they're concerned. And on the consumer side, certainly there is a percentage of the population um, that's concerned about, you know, the impact on the planet or on, on communities. But And I think that that obviously grows um, the, the kind of younger uh, demographic you get, but these this kind of concept isn't new. Um, you know, Cadbury's, the you know the global chocolate brand, um, back in the mid nineteenth century, they were operating in Birmingham, and um, and they were they realised that actually a third of the population of Birmingham were living in you know disgusting streets and everything else, and so they established this. Uh, factory in Bourneville um, in 1879 and and it was state of the art they had um, exercise facilities and bathing units and gardens and sports fields and hygiene facilities and actually by looking after their employees they were actually looking after their business they were making sure that they had long uh, established um, relationships with their employees and, and and obviously that would trickle out through their, um, you know, not only their quality but, but in terms of their brand and their reputation within the local community. Yeah, that's interesting because I've been to – I wonder if they're two different things. I wonder if, um, you know, people like, for example, um, the Googles and, and people or – that have fantastic facilities that have got exercise rooms and they've got um, you know, they serve meals to the employees they've got massage rooms they've got all of these things is that really is that because they want to or because there's such a competition for staff today that they think geez if we don't we're not going to hang on to people 
Well, I think it's probably <laughs> I think it's probably the latter, but at the same time, it's you know there's a there's a business imperative and to minimise churn and uh, and and also attract attract and retain those the right talent. And you know, as you as you well know, and your listeners would know, it costs a lot to uh, to replace someone, and uh, and so it's much it's often much cheaper to give them food or, or give them a gym um, membership or what have you. So I think that, that like looking holistically at, um, at employees and employee well-being is just one part of being a good corporate citizen, but also looking at your, um, you know, looking at the environment in which you work or the factories in which you operate, that's, that's another factor of being a good corporate citizen. Yeah, I often wonder what percentage of companies um, are good corporate citizens because it does boost share price, it does boost your market cap, it does all those things. But I wonder how many of them would do it if it didn't. You know? Yeah, look, I I think there are there are a few uh, brave ones. You know, as you mentioned, like the Patagonias, who who kind of just have a bit of a north star and they and they just go for that, and that's very much core to who they are as a brand. Um, but you know the there is you know uh, also a long history of 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 companies that have a strong social conscience being taken up and purchased by large multinationals. Yeah. So you know the likes of Ben and Jerry's and um, uh, um, you know many others. Um, I think Tom's, yeah, Burt's Bees. Um, you know, all of those companies have been taken on by larger corporations, and and recently, um, Campbell Soups bought uh, a, a health and well-being brand for babies, and they were established as a, a B Corp or a benefit corporation, mm. and uh, and they they Campbell Soup decided that no, they were going to keep that. That was an integral part of the brand, mm. and they were going to keep that as um, an unchanged as they. Uh, folded it into their portfolio. So it, I think companies and corporations are increasingly realize, realizing that not only this is the right thing to do, but it makes good business sense and also they're going to attract and retain the right people. So look, no one, I don't think people are altruistic and, and they have this kind of halo over their head and they want to, they want to do stuff for the sake of it. It actually it makes good business sense, and yeah. you know um, GE have you know, t- more than ten years ago they identified that actually being a good corporate citizen and focusing in on the opportunities that presented themselves around environmental sustainability uh, and health and well-being have created enormous new markets for them, um, and the same with Vodafone in uh, in Africa they you know. 10, 12 years ago, they were using mobile technology to help people uh, actually transact money without the need, need for banks and currency. And that was happening years and years ahead of, ahead of their time. But what they were doing was actually opening up brand new markets for themselves. Yeah. Well, just going back to that, the um, nearly all of the transactions in Africa now are all um – um, online transaction. Very few people have money, and the banks don't don't really count. Yeah, exactly. And and you know, Vodafone spear, spearheaded that. And actually, it was one of they had a kind of an entrepreneur um, that was 
you know, one of their team in Africa that kind of saw an opportunity, saw that Vodafone actually had the tech to deliver on that and with a few tweaks was able to make it happen. Yeah. So, so far, we've spoken about big companies. Mm. If you're a small company or even a medium-sized company, how can you be socially and environmentally responsible and profitable? Doesn't being... Does being socially and environmentally responsible means you have to spend more money? Uh, yes and no. I think it's about spending money necess- or spending money or diverting resources, be that time or or staff or whatever it might be, into the right place. And it doesn't mean that you have to replicate the big boys and uh, and go out and try and be everything to everyone. Um, you can be, you know, for instance, you could be a, a local plumber that that someone, you know, let's imagine a local plumber that says, you know, my mother was a, um, a, a single mom and, and she went through the homeless uh, centre. I want to do something for that for that centre. So then that, that individual says, right, I'm going to actually volunteer my time uh, to that women's shelter downtown but also what I'm going to do is every time I get a client, I'm going to tell them what I'm doing and see if they want to give $10 or $5 or just made, make a little donation to cover the costs of all my materials. And then they can also engage their supply chain and say uh, when they go to their, their plumbing supply place, look, I'm doing this thing. So it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be an enormous undertaking. It can be a very small um, thing. But I think more than anything, that those sort of stories and that kind of engaging with your supply chain or with your end customers and giving a kind of a, a story um, is actually what engages people and what connects people to a business. If that's a small micro business like a one-man one plumbing operation or it could be um, – I recently was working with a, an Australian fashion brand who um, they were saying, look, where do we start? We've got such a complex supply chain in multiple continents. Um, where do we start? We, we're being pressured on social media to do to do more uh, or to talk about things more. Where do we start? And I think the important thing is just to actually start and to kind of say, you know, well, we're going to do something. And so... One of the things that, you know, when I worked with them and we identified that one of the biggest impacts that they were having was actually their international travel as a company. They travel a lot. Right. And, and, and so even just offsetting all their flights and, uh, and purchasing green power and actually saying that for travel and for, um, and for the company operations at their head office, they were carbon neutral. That's a that's a very simple thing to do. It's not. It's a first very small step, um, but then I think you know it's about bringing in some people that can help navigate that that pathway and find a way that is meaningful, not only to that company but to their employees and their and their various stakeholders, most most particularly their their customers. And that person that you call in is Paul O'Byrne, right? Yeah. Not necessarily. I mean, there are a lot of really great people. I come in, certainly yeah, I could do it. And uh, you, I mean, you, stop you know, that's there. what you I stop there. You don't give anybody else a plug. You stop there. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I was I mean, reading 
um, a story about um, Mars, the French Bill Gates, if you like, who has set up a um, sustainability giving uh, organisation where he's asking everybody to give 1% of whatever they've got, whether they're a worker or whether they're a big company. Um, and he, he did emphasise that there's all these benefits, the increased share value, the increased market cap, the retention of staff, all those things. But he said in order to really get that to pay off, you've got to promote the hell out of the fact that you're being socially and environmentally responsible. Mm. So does that mean that you've really got to yell it out at people rather than just let it happen by osmosis? Well, I think when everyone is is yelling, um, it creates for a very noisy uh, environment. And uh, and I think what it comes back to is differentiation, like any kind of marketing message. And I think if, if... it's, it's one thing to kind of give 1%, but if everyone is giving 1% and everyone's talking that they're giving 1%, it, it's kind of meaningless, right? Except it's good so that whoever's getting the 1%. Absolutely. And I think that, therefore, it's coming back to when, when you're actually talking about that. It's actually talking about the impact rather than we gave $220 million last year. Who, you know, who cares? Because the next guy will say, well, we gave $245 million. And so it actually is, well, what actually happened with that money? What are the communities that have been affected? What are the, what are the lives that have been affected? How is, the, how is the planet or this community or the world in which we operate a better place? That's what people want to hear. That's what they resonate to. And, and I think um, that the kind of clarity of that, of that message comes from really good measurement and evaluation and having a really clear sense of what it is you're trying to do there. So what, like rather than focusing in on the solution, actually zeroing in on the problem and going, what, what, it was, what is it we're trying to fix? And then telling people how you're getting closer to fixing that. Right. Um, for a small company, obviously the benefits for a big company are pretty obvious, but for a, a smaller company... Mm-hmm. Um, What's the business case for a smaller company, apart from well, doing, doing good and feeling good? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think, you know, for a small company, I think engagement uh, – well, actually, I'll take a step back. It's, I think it's the first thing is differentiation. I mean, let's face it, business uh, today is incredibly competitive and uh, in most markets are very cluttered and it's very hard to differentiate yourself in those. Um so I think actually having a point of difference and having something that you can kind of stake your business on that is not only engaging and meaningful to your customer base, but it's also meaningful and engaging to your staff um, and your stakeholders and the banks that give you money and, and, and. So I think that, you know, more than anything, it's about kind of reputation and, and differentiation. And I think that if you're a, you know, if you're a small business or a, you know, medium-sized business with a couple of hundred employees, that's incredibly important when you're actually competing for your labor or, you know, for your employees against the likes of Google, 
that are, you know, that have unlimited resources um, or, or other companies that have incredibly well-developed corporate social responsibility programs. So I think that increasingly, you know, particularly as millennials enter the, the workforce um, more and more, um, that message will need to be um, prevalent pretty much throughout the, the value chain. Who's doing um, sustainability and environmental um, impact well? And who's doing it badly, apart from the Trump <laughs> government? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think, um, I mean, I mentioned Vodafone uh, previously, and, and I think what's impressive about them is that they've been, um, they've been very consistent and they've focused in on that intersection of what needs to happen and where they can add the most value and what they're best placed to do. And I think that kind of clarity and impact intersection is super important. So, so I think Vodafone have they kind of staked their their um, line in the sand a, a long time ago and have been true to that. Equally, um, someone like uh, Walmart, who you would you wouldn't think of as an environmental leader, have been able to save literally millions and millions and millions of dollars by by not only saying uh, that this is where we're going as a company, but um, engaging their workforce to say, "All right, you're you're on the ground. You can see stuff happening." And one guy in there, I mean, this is a, an old example, but one guy who was on their um, floor uh, on their shop floors said, "You know, actually, why why are all the vending machines lit up? Um, they actually, you know, we've already got enormous store lighting. They realised they were just by taking." the, the uh, light bulbs out of their vending machines, they, they save $2 million a year. No one, wow. you, 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 you saw, um, you know, you still saw the products because those stores are so well lit. Sure. Um, but just those simple things. So I think, you know, the people, there are a lot of companies that are doing stuff and not, you know, um, beating their own drum too much about it. They're just getting on with it because they realize also that it's actually, it's great for business. They're making, a, you know, they're making a lot of savings. Uh, particularly in the environmental space, um, and yeah, and so I think that they're doing they're doing it particularly well. Um, I mean, there are so many banks. I think uh, have often been competing in this space. Um, phone companies like Vodafone, tech companies, um, and they're all kind of staking, you know, trying to sort of stake their their place. And I could go on for days with with examples, but it's. Um, and even you know you know when there's money to be made in this space when when the large consulting companies move in so you know the likes of PwC and Bain and all of those they've all moved into this space as well so um, clearly it's it's moving into um, the mainstream. There's a brilliant ad from Starbucks at the moment on television that says that um, you know they've planted so many trees and they've they're carbon neutral and they've employed, you know, 10,000 students and they've employed 10,000 veterans and they've, it just goes on and on and on about all the good things they've done. And it's a really impressive ad. You sit there at the end of the ad and go, wow, I feel like going and just supporting them by being buying a coffee. You know, it's yeah. a very powerful ad. Um, where do we go from here? Well, I mean, what's the big trends that's happening now that will continue to grow or 
what's going to happen next week, next year, year after? Well, I think you know certainly the the um, you know the bigger guys are you know the the very big brands, global brands are are sort of setting the the course, but at the same time um, they're not very nimble. So I think some of the the larger brands are learning from the smaller brands, um, but but I think the you know the role of the employee uh, in a in an in an environment where there is going to be um, people transitioning through their through their careers and changing uh, careers on a number of levels uh, on on a number of occasions throughout their career. They need to be engaged not only with what the company is doing every day, but but who they are and what their values are. Because um, so that I think will continue to be a huge um, huge factor. What I think in- the Sorry. What influence will the public play? For example, all the with with the Trump presidency, all of the fuel companies have come out saying we want to scrap all the fuel emission laws. We want to scrap the um, mandatory mileage targets. We want to scrap all that. We want to go back to the good old days when we can do what we fucking like. Um, so, how does the public play a role in all this? I mean, it's all right. Uh, with it's with all their right. wallets. Yeah, but you've got to buy fuel. Yeah, true. And all but the I same. That, absolutely. <laughs> they all I think, well, I think that, you know, a lot of people are moving, you know, particularly, well, in, in the bubble of Southern California, at least. Sure. It's, sure. Uh, you know, to electric cars. And I think that, you know, that a lot of the, the major kind of car companies realise that, that is, that's the future. Um, but, look, I think the you know the current administration and and where things are going it's it, it like anything it's it's a needle that sort of swings back and forth but but ultimately i think in terms of um the general population and where things are going uh and the rise of of the millennials as we've talked about um it's only it, it's only going to become more and more important for companies uh, particularly as you know, if the disparity in wealth becomes even more prevalent or climate change or the effects of so-called climate change uh, become more increasingly apparent, uh, people will be looking for answers and they will be looking for solutions. And and governments increasingly are stepping away from all of this stuff and I think corporations are recognising and businesses, you know, large and small, are recognising that they have a, a powerful role to play in it. Okay, this, this is probably something you don't like talking about, but you were with Kate um, um, Blanchett and Andrew Upton for quite a long, many years. Mm. What's their commitment to sustainability in the environment? Obviously, they have a strong one, or they, you wouldn't have been employed. <laughs> yeah. Um, look, I, I think... Uh, it's one of their initial visions for the Sydney Theatre Company that they took on in uh, as the artistic directors in 2008. When they were asked what what their vision for the for the company was, initially, like before they'd even started, they said that they wanted to to demonstrate that the arts could be a leader in climate change alongside uh, fuel companies or banks or whatever it might be, and so. 
the and it's an unusual place for the the arts to kind of say, all right, well, we're gonna we're gonna have solar panels on the roof or that kind of thing, especially when uh, the art form uh, is is the most important thing, which is kind of like the profit center for uh, sure. for an arts and cultural organization. So. I think for them to kind of stake their reputations uh, on that on that bold vision back in two thousand and eight was um, was a brave one, and and I think you know working with them closely, I realised that they they do walk the talk. You know, they when they moved back to Sydney, they completely retrofitted their uh, home on Sydney Harbour with one of the best rainwater harvesting systems and solar. Um, uh, solar arrays on the roof and even timed showers and so you would there are, there are not many Hollywood stars that, that have timed showers <laughs> yes. so, so they you know they, they walk the talk Kate Kate would drive herself around Sydney in a Prius and uh, and they, they lived it and and you know that's that was incredibly encouraging to the staff and the audiences I think of of the Sydney Theatre Company, but but in, in, interestingly, you know when you when I used to speak to the HR manager there, she would say that nine times out of ten, when asked when asking new employees why they were coming to work for Sydney Theatre Company, it was the environmental sustainability credentials that attracted them because they could go and work, you know, and be a marketing yeah. manager in so many different places, or they could be a they could be an accountant in so many different places. But there were very few companies that were actually putting themselves on the line. So with that, STC was able to attract um, uh, really great people like myself. Like yourself, which is not a bad way to finish the interview. So if you're sitting out there and you've got a small business or a medium-sized business or indeed a large business and you believe that you should be doing a lot more about um, uh, sustainability and about environmental impact, then Paul – O'Byrne is your guy. I, I know him very, very well. He's very dedicated, as you've just heard. He's very smart. He really knows his stuff, and uh, he would he would love to talk to you. Paul, thanks very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Thanks, Bob. It's been a pleasure. You can learn more about Paul at, I don't know where this comes from, but pollination.international.com. No, no .com, just .international. Oh, do, Okay, Don, oh, pollination.international. I've got to, I should have asked where that came from, but I, we don't have time. Very interesting name. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show and Voice America Business Network after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit business radio show. Coming at you on Voice America Business Network, and I'm broadcasting today across the world from Coffs Harbour, which is about six hours north of Sydney, Australia. And it's the area in which 
Olivia Newton-John and the Hemsworth boys and Miley Cyrus and Russell Crowe and a whole bunch of other people live. It's a gorgeous part of the world. I'm looking out the window at waves breaking across rocks in the Pacific. It is really beautiful. It's a place to put on your bucket list. Now, I went to a birthday party, which was attended by a bunch of kids about five years old, and they're all terribly adept at using iPads and smartphones, barely able to take their eyes off the screens. However, the problem is that screen time is a major issue for kids and parents seem to be totally oblivious to it. Or if they're not, they're happy to have their kids' brains permanently damaged as long as they can have a cheap babysitter. Seems to me to be stupid. The World Health Organization has issued its first ever guidance for how much screen time children under five should get. And it's a maximum of one hour per day of quality programming, not mindless games, and even less is preferred, and none at all for anybody under one. The younger your child is, the more screen time is likely to be harming them. Devices, of course, are now, you know, they're part of our everyday lives and there's nothing we can do to escape them. But it's important to have a kid's healthy development the screens not become integral to their lives too soon. To be healthy, children under five should be spending less time staring at screens and more time playing. No more than one hour of screen time a day and then with quality programming and not mindless crap. Too, many screen, too much screen time coupled with sedentary behaviour in children under five can lead to inadequate sleep, low activity levels, diminished brain activity, and a whole bunch of other things. So improving physical activity, reducing sedentary time, and ensuring quality sleep in young children will improve their physical, mental health, and well-being and help prevent childhood obesity and associated diseases a bit later in life. The WHO recommends that for infants under one, no screen time at all. Infants should be active several times a day through floor-based play, and if the baby isn't mobile, they should have at least 30 minutes of tummy time throughout the day. Infants shouldn't be restrained for more than an hour at a time in strollers or high chairs or strap-on carriers. Infants less than one year old should spend at least half an hour every day on their stomachs, and that older kid should get at least three hours of physical activity every day day. Now, screen time also isn't recommended for one-year-olds, and the WHO suggests that an hour a day for two-year-olds. Children one to two should have about three hours of physical activity through the day, not be restrained, and no more than one hour of quality programming. You know, kids sit there with these games and they just keep flicking and flicking and flicking, learning absolutely nothing and becoming you know, potential vegetables. They're the people that are going to grow up, sit and watch Oprah and get fat. Three to four-year-olds shouldn't go over one hour of screen time of high-quality programming. Kids this age should participate in about three hours of physical activity every day. Now, these guidelines are similar to advice from the American Academy of Pediatrics, and they recommend children younger than 18 months should avoid all screen time. Parents of young children under two should choose high-quality program with educational value that should be watched with the parent 
to help kids understand what they're seeing and explain to the kids. And parents' family guidelines should focus on how often children have access to screens, less than an hour, and ideally should have screen-free days during the week. How many kids do you know under three that would get past that test? None. They sit there with all these cartoons and things and mindlessly swipe and push buttons, learn absolutely nothing and damage their brain while they're doing it. Great plan. Now, children should split their time between different types of screens and parents should use a stopwatch or a screen lock as a control measure. Parents should be particular about what children can view as the quality of what your child is viewing is more important than the time spent watching. Now, like all parenting decisions, it's important to focus on modelling the preferred behaviour for your child and involving the children in the decision-making process. Monitor what they're accessing and use the opportunity to start conversations and learning, making sure that screens are used in family and shared areas, not in bedrooms. Um, I wonder if how many parents remember what conversations are. You know, that's when one person talks and the other person listens and then answers and goes back and does it again. It's a fairly simple procedure, but most parents seem to have forgotten how it works. Now, the WHO did not specifically detail the potential harm caused by too much screen time, but said the guidelines, which also included recommendations for physical activity and sleep, were needed to address the increasing amount of sedentary behaviour in the general population. It noted that physical inactivity is a leading risk factor for death and a contributor to the rise in obesity. So even when your kids are one and two, you are contributing to their future, detrimentally to their future health unless you cut down on screen time. Now remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier and it's much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Anybody can be ordinary. Anybody can do the ordinary. You've got to set yourself, you know, I used to always say, take the biggest bite you can and then chew like hell because that's much more fun and much more rewarding. And if you're always trying to be normal, you're always going to be boring and you'll never know how amazing you can be. Do you want to be the person who leaves a party and everybody else says, oh, God, isn't that guy bloody boring? Jesus. Well, you don't have to be. Now, I hope you're going to join me again next Tuesday when I'll be broadcasting across the world again from our studios in Hollywood, California. And that's the place where entertainment meets technology. In the meanwhile, I hope you have a fantastic week. Continue to be successful because the alternative to success really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.